You're listening to the Barry Egan Tapes on News Talk. I'm Barry Egan from the Sunday Independent and I'm talking with Christy Dignam. How are you doing, Barry? Christy, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to Thanks you for too. coming in. What, oh. what were your Christmas? You were the, um, was it the second eldest of second eight? Second eldest, yes. Always the eldest son of eight kids. So there was always somebody, you know, there was always a load of kids underneath me. And so the magic was there right up to, you know, till I was an adult, you know. But um, So you were telling your brothers and sisters that Santa is coming, so you better yeah. be good and yeah, all that all kind of that. stuff. Yeah, so it was cool. But, you know, I, I remember looking last Christmas, I have grandkids now, obviously, you know, so I was looking at their toys for Christmas. I remember getting a globe for Christmas, you know, a globe of the world. Yeah. That was my Christmas present, and that was it, one present. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the kids get tons of stuff now. It's, it's different now. It's different. But one of the best presents I ever got was I got, you know those cars, the pedal cars? I got one of them when I was a kid. Oh, man. I thought, I thought, it, was, I thought it was Rockefeller. I'll never forget it. I thought you were Rockefeller with all the money you made <laughs> from the music business. No, I spent all my money, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> on sweets. On ill-gotten games. Yeah. Do you remember wait, being a kid and waiting for Santa to come at night? Yeah, I remember spoofing my mates up, telling them I seen him, you know. I seen him last night coming across your roof. Because we had houses facing us, obviously, over in the street. So he used to tell me, I seen him over your house last night. Spoofer. And what, what was Christmas dinner like? And all? Was, your, was your father singing? My dad was a cook. My dad well, used to cook Sunday dinner. So my, my whole, like my awakening to music was my dad singing. John McCormick and things like yeah, that? Yeah, all that sort of stuff. Because he was, he was into all that. He opera. was a singing busman, was he? No. He worked for CIE, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, but he, he wasn't a busman. He, he actually done the upholstery on the buses. He was an upholsterer by trade. Does that mean you had a gorgeous house? No. Oh. That's the thing, isn't it? The cobbler's shoes. <laughs> er, we, we had, here, I'll tell you a story. So all our, all the, the suites and furniture in our house were covered by bus material. So we'd be in the gaff with me. I remember sitting there with my mates one day and we were getting ready to go out, you know, and then, ding, ding, let's go, you know. <laughs> But yeah, my dad, my dad used to cover suites of furniture because he had a place out the back and he used to, co- at the weekend, he'd cover suites of furniture for people. But our, our suites, our chairs were in bits. Yeah. But it's just the old Well, you can't really blame him given no. he had like eight kids. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. He was a great man. I mean, I look at it now, I only had one daughter, you know, and that was that was hard yeah. to rare her, you know, financially and everything else. And he had eight of us on a CAE wage. It was, it was just amazing. Yeah. So he'd walk, he walked every day. He'd come home and he'd do the furniture at night. You know, he'd be covered in furniture. And um, then on Sunday, he'd been making the dinner. And he used to make these apple cakes, apple and custard. And he'd be, people all over the road used to get them. And did, you, did the singing thing come from your dad? Yeah, so he used to sing. Now, he wasn't a, he wasn't a professional singer or anything, but he was a nice, he had a lovely voice. I have a, I have a tape of him. It's one of, one of my kind of... Um, one of the things that I really, I really treasure, and it's him singing "Smoke It's in Your Eyes." Just at a party one night, we're just sitting in the gaff, and he was just singing with a lovely voice. Yeah. So he used to be singing all. I remember there, there was Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald. They were big back then in the in the Hollywood days. Yeah. And Mario Lanza, people like that. So he'd be singing all this stuff. So my fo- I used to think that was top of the pops when I was a kid, you yeah. know. And it's only when I went out on the street then, and people start talking about other, you know, whoever Slade or Gilbert O'Sullivan or something, that I realised that that's what contemporary music was all about. Do you remember hearing your dad's lovely voice for the last time? It was earlier this year, was it February or March? Yeah. He was in a nursing home and he, you know, that's right, the yeah. time well, of see, COVID. We didn't see him for months 
and um, you rang him and he said, "Why has no one come in to see me?" Yeah. So, but see, the nurse used to be saying to me, um, "Put him on the phone there, and I put you can get him on on FaceTime, you know." But when I'd visit me, they had dementia. So when I'd visit him before the COVID thing, it was hard to get a conversation out of him because he'd be in and out of pres- being present, you know. So I didn't want to put him on FaceTime because I thought that would just freak him out, you know, because he wouldn't know anything about phones and stuff. So I used to say no. So one day I was ringing. When he got the COVID, I used to be ringing every day to see how he was. And one day the nurse said, I'm standing beside him. Will I put him on? So she put him on and he said, why is he not coming up to see me? So I was trying to explain to him about the COVID and stuff, and he didn't, he didn't, he couldn't grasp it really. So anyway, so I rang the family the next day and I said, "Look, we'll all go up tomorrow and stand in the car park of the nursing home and get the nurses to bring him up to the window and wave out to us." This is not very Christmassy, you know. This is a bit. So that's what we did anyway. But then after that, he just he died about two days after that. You know. And do you remember waving goodbye to him at the window? Yeah, yeah, it was awful. Just you know. I'd have wished, I was wishing for him to pass away when he was in the nursing home before COVID because if I'd have videoed him in that circumstance and went back in time and said, this is where you're going to end up, he'd have said, shoot me, please don't let me end up in a place like that. Yeah. So I was kind of hoping he'd pass away in his sleep. But then because of the COVID, we didn't see him. Um, but when you got the phone call that your father had died, your first thought was, I'll never I'll see never his face see again. Never see I'll his never, face again. I'll never lay eyes on him again. I, I, was, I was surprised at how devastated I was when he died, considering, you know, the circumstances of it all, you know. But I was absolutely devastated, yeah. And that was the thing I'll never see. And to this day, like, we don't know what he was buried in. Because when, when you die in those nursing homes, you have to seal the, the coffin within a couple of hours and all that carry on. And so we don't even know what way he was dressed going into his grave. So. That was the last, the last time you saw your father was... Yeah. Was in, and it, like it was two through nurses. the window. Yeah, two nurses and all the, all the PPE you know, all the big, you know, um, visors and big rubber gloves and all, and you're holding them up to the window. And I remember even thinking that that would have freaked him out, you know. But the nurse told us he went to bed after that day, and he just never got up again. He, he lay down and, and mm. a couple of hours later. He... So I think he, I think he was saying goodbye to us that day in his own way or something. I don't know. I'd like to think that's what was happening. And when you look back, and is there any memories that stick out of your of your father? Oh yeah, he was he was just an amazing person, you know. What I do mean, you think you inherited from him? And um, he gave us. My dad gave us. My dad was very. He was very anti devilier and anti religion and stuff. And my ma was very religious, so you had that kind of juxtaposition in the house where my ma would be baiting us out to mass, and my dad would be kind he of beating you back. <laughs> yeah, honest to God, that's the way it was. So what it kind of did was it gave us a very healthy disrespect for authority, you know, because he was very anti anti authority, and uh, I mean he was he, he, when I say that he was he worked and he paid his taxes and all that carry on. So so my dad, for example, when I'd be going to work when I used to work years ago, you'd literally have to have your leg amputated to take a day off. You know what I mean? He wouldn't he he wouldn't let you kind of just lie in bed kind of thing. He built me an aviary when I was a kid, you know, for, for my boards. And uh, I remember going to a psychologist years later about the heroin, about the heroin addiction and all. And he was saying, your father, the reason you're an addict is because of your father, you know. And I was going, oh, he's a great father. He, I said, he used to walk every day 
I said, and then on his few hours off, he built an aviary for me. He said, yeah, he built a prison for you. Did you not see? He built a prison for your boards. That was your prison. And I'm going, yeah, sap, get out of here. <laughs> Went down and took more heroin because the man was an idiot. Do you, do you, are you still a keen bird watcher? Yeah, I still yeah. mother. It's, it, it's the Royal Canal that where you live. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I live right beside the Royal Canal. So there's a big walk. So your 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 wife doesn't mind you going out to look at birds. No. No. No, she doesn't. <laughs> just She's baiting me out the door. <laughs> just joking aside, um, your your father told you once that he was abused in industrial school. Yes. And he didn't. He, he did. actually didn't tell me. My other brother told me. One of my other brothers told me because, um, he was in um, uh, Artain. So when he was a kid, when his father died, his father was an alcoholic. So when his father died, they had whatever seven or eight kids. And back then, if you had, if the, if the government could, had people come in, and if they determined that you weren't wealthy enough to keep these seven kids, the kids would be taken off you and put into these industrial. That's how he got ended up in our time. Jesus, I did, I didn't know till then. But he was abused in our time. But he used to work in the kitchens in our time. That's where he learned how to make the apple cakes. He told me. Yeah, but when you had a horrific experience when you were six, he told me to, he, says, he said, "Why are you talking about it?" Yeah, he says, "Look, he says, stuff happens to people. You just get on with it. Don't be telling all the world about it." But his way of dealing with it was to say nothing. Your way of dealing with it was was to take heroin, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, but he when I, when I came out, you see what happened was I I used to, I, I had been in the Rutland Centre after Aslan split up and all that. I went into the Rutland Centre. It was actually Don Baker got me into it. So I went in, and when I was in the Rutland Centre, it was a six-week course, and on the fourth week, nearly all the people in there, I was the only heroin addict in there at the time. We didn't really do heroin addicts at that time. They were all alcoholics, we say, and gamblers and stuff. But nearly in the everybody to a man in there, on the fourth week, they'd have this epiphany, you know, and they'd start talking about when I was a kid, my dad used to come home on a Friday night, and he'd batter me man, He'd be spending all his wages. And I'd be sitting there going, I had an amazing choice. Nothing like that happened to me, you know. So I was looking at all that, and I didn't have this epiphany that everybody else had, you know. So when I left the Rutland Centre, that had never happened to me. And I was getting private one-on-one -on -one counselling and all. They were trying to get into me, but I just couldn't work it out. So when I came out of the Rutland, I, I was visiting my ma this day at my ma and dad's house. So I walked into the house and I was talking to them and my dad said, what sort of a need are you taking heroin for God's sake? Do you not see how surely you know how stupid that is now? And I was trying to explain to him, you know, look at that, maybe something happened to me as a kid, I don't know, you know. And he looked at me as if, are you saying I didn't love you enough as a child? And I was making the whole situation worse. And that started freaking me out there. And I said, look at that, that's not what I meant. And I left the house then all kind of, messed up over this situation and when I walked out I looked at the hall door of the bloke who abused me and the whole thing just came back to me then just boom bring you back to being a six year old again yeah today I can remember well I don't remember all the details but I remember most of it you know you know so so basically at that time just for anybody that doesn't know what happened was this neighbour sent me up to the shops for he, a bottle he tricked of, you yeah well he sent me for a bottle of cola but he so, tricked you into coming into, into coming yes. into his house. Well, yeah. So, so when I got back to the house with a bottle of cola, he he, um, he asked me. To, he said the door was kind of ajar a little bit. He said, "Come in." And when I came in, I remember the locks. There's there's a bolt on the top of the door, on the bottom of the door, and I remember them going up. And the door, the house was in darkness because the curtains was, were drawn, right? Yes. In the afternoon. And yeah, and that was really unusual. And I remember thinking that was weird. 
So basically what he did, he took the laces down my shoes and he stripped me off and tied me to a chair and he got me to fucking do all sorts of shit to him. So this this all came back to me then, you know. I'd forgotten all about it. Could, could you talk to your father about it? Could you talk to, did you talk to a psychologist? or No. I never, I never really talked to anybody about it. I just talked about it. That it happened, and every time I talked about it, it seemed to take, it seemed to lose a little bit of its yeah poison. You know, but wasn't there a time you were in? Was it Ballymun Flats, and you dropped a penny over the side, and you were thinking, yeah, well, that was how long I, it would take. I was to... still strung out at that time, so yeah. I was in at the time. I was after being using heroin for a while, and then I got into crack, so I was using crack and heroin at the time, and I think crack is ten times worse than heroin personally. You know, it's just. It's a, it's a horrible drug. Anyway, my wife, we came out one, I got up one day and came out the front of the hall door and my car and her car were both smashed to bits. All the windows were smashed in them and somebody had poured acid over it. So basically it was somebody that I owed money to from the, from the drugs and I didn't pay them quick enough and this was for retaliation. So she threw me out of the house. So I was kind of, I went uh um, sofa surfing for a while just different mates gaffs, sleeping on like sofas and eventually me, I had a sister lived in Ballymun Flats and I eventually moved in with her so I was living there for about a year so while I was living there I was still using and I was getting worse and worse because f- for years all my using was done secretly do you know what I mean where I was kind of doing it behind my wife's back and stuff but now that I was living like on my own I could just go mad do you know what I mean so I did and it was it was horrible so it got to a point where I was um, I was suicidal. So I was in Ballymun and we lived on the, f- the sixth floor and I threw a penny over the, the balcony and I counted how long it took to hit the ground. And um, so it says, it took three and a half seconds, I think. So I remember saying, if I throw myself off this in three and a half seconds, this will be over. All what stopped this. you from throwing yourself off? I started thinking of my daughter for her explaining to her friends what had happened to her dad and that kind of stopped me because I didn't want I didn't want to put that on her you know but you see the, the way I was thinking and anybody out there who's, adi- who's addicted and will probably know what I'm talking about I start thinking you know these me, me daughter will cry for a month or two and then she'll get over it you know but li- this way I'm kind of killing her with the, the death of a thousand cuts you know where I'm just slowly killing her you know and killing myself, where I said, if I throw myself off this, it'll be all over. They'll mourn me for a month, and then they'll get on with their lives, and she, my wife will get the husband she deserves, and you know all that crap, you know. Yeah, you're listening to the Barry Egan tapes on News Happy Talk. Happy Christmas! I'm talking with Christy Dignan, who's Happy Christmas, Christy. <laughs> Sorry, we're not being very Christmassy, but your your, your wife obviously forgave you for all that yeah. and took you back in. You know, a song called Broken Soul. And I was trying to, I came back, I, you know, I I went down to Moat and I rented a house and I went through cold turkey and I tried that, that didn't work. Then I ended up going to Thailand to a place called Tamprabok, which was a, a Buddhist monastery over there. And so when you go over there... It was kind of heaven and hell, was it? This was hell, man. This was hardcore gear. It got me off the heroin, you know, so it worked in, in that sense. But it didn't work immediately. Like I actually used after being in there. But for some reason, all the stuff that I'd kind of done with the, the talking I'd done with the with the Buddhists, all that kind of got into me like osmosis. 
Do you know what I mean? So like after using after that it was never the same, you know, because I knew, I knew that you know I couldn't bullshit myself and tell me this was cool to be doing this anymore. You know, I knew it was the wrong thing to do, so <coughs> I stopped, and that was so yeah. So wasn't there I, a time in Greece as well when when you had, were with Aslan uh, and you you broke your methadone bottle and you yeah. had to do cold turkey for two days on your own? Yeah. So what happened there was I had it in the in the safe. You know, do you have a safe in your when you go on holiday? You have a safe on the wall, and it was a tile floor. So I was in a glass bottle. So I took the bottle out of the safe and I poured out This is like street theatre, Chris. You need to sit down. Oh, yeah, I forgot that, I forgot that. <laughs> I'm turning into your father telling oh, you to yeah. sit down. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, so that's what the, the bottle smashed. And I remember two days later trying to scrape it up off the ground. It turned into like a jelly, all fungus and, and all on do, it. Do you still need to be vigilant? Yeah. And not time something will happen. Like I remember there a while ago, I heard about this bloke was selling some uh, uh, near where I where I live, and just for a few minutes you start thinking, well I'm not strung out now, so I'll be able to take a quick one, you know. And what stops you? You you, you think of I just know those horrible gonna, memories of yeah. of of, of sweating in a room on your own? Yeah, I can't I can't I can't do anything when the boy halves. You know what I mean? I just throw myself into everything that I do, and I did with heroin and I did with crack cocaine. So when I take if I if I Filled myself into saying I could just take one. I wouldn't take one. I'd be and half an hour later. I'd be if I even drank alcohol and got drunk. That would lower me kind of me um, resolve to, to to not take drugs. So I can't even drink alcohol. And when you got diagnosed in two thousand and thirteen, a doctor told you that you you was a rare blood cancer yeah. and you had six months to live. And yeah. it, your first reaction was I don't believe you. Yeah, yeah. So I was saying to him. I remember talking to him and I actually told him to bring his, his uh, degrees back to Trinity College that he didn't know what he was talking about. You know, because I thought, I was, I was getting these chest infections all the time and I was getting um, antibiotics and they weren't working. So it's just, I'd, I'd had something like 13 antibiotic courses in a couple of months and I was saying to the doctor, like, there's something wrong, these antibiotics aren't doing anything. But I thought I had pneumonia or something of that ilk, you know. So, I was in Blanchestown Hospital and he sent me up to Bowmount to, to get biopsy done. And he said, we're at the point in two cancers. We don't know whether you have amyloidosis or multiple myeloma, but we, we think it's one of these. So then they came back the next day and says, you have to two of them. So I, I actually had the two fucking cancers, which is a pisser. So I just, yeah, it's very hard. And so I didn't, I didn't want to accept it. But about a year before, prior to this, this woman rang me and asked me to go up and visit her son in Bowmount Hospital. He was about 11 at the time. So myself and Billy went up and we played a few songs for this young flea, you know. And uh, he passed away then a, a couple of days later. And I remember thinking, I was 50 at the time of being diagnosed, 53. So this kid was 11 and I was thinking, how the grace that this kid went to, to his death with and here was I an adult who had lived 53 years and I was whinging and this kid had done it with, with Grace at 11 years of age so I saw him I was ashamed of myself the way I was carrying on so that was it and I, plus you have to accept it you know you can you can tell people that's not true all you watch but still but you were told you had six months to live yes that, that was it. well basically what happened was seven years ago yeah what happened was he didn't say it to me my daughter was getting married I got diagnosed in, in March 
and my daughter was getting married in July. And she she asked the doctor, she said, when, when he said, listen, will he be able to um, go to the wedding? Do you think he'd be all right for the wedding? It's in July. And the doctor says, we don't think he's going to get through the night at that time. So she says, we're after giving him chemotherapy. If the chemo, if he, if, he, uh, if his body accepts the chemo and he reacts to it, we have a bit of a chance of kind of pulling him back. So so I, I did get through that kind of immediate emergency. And then when I was getting let out of hospital, the doctors t- t- called us in and called Catherine in and he said, if you have anywhere to see or anything to do on a bucket list, you'll need to do it because he's about six months left. And did you go off anywhere? No, because she didn't tell me. Yeah. She didn't tell me that he said that. Yeah. So it was only when the six, the day the six months was up, she told me. She says, you're supposed to be dead today. That's yeah. a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I apologize. No, it's um, cool. I don't mind. It's it, it's it's a weird thing, you know. But you, you 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 were almost dead at one point. You yeah. made, you you flatlined. Well, I flatlined. And yeah, I said to the nurse, I was holding the nurse was holding my hand, and she was kind of rubbing my hand, you know. And I says, I'm not dying, am I? And she looked away. She just went. <laughs> <laughs> so that freaked me out then, you know. And, I'll never forget it. It's like it was like something off a cartoon. Like there was like a flurry of paper, because you're coming in, opening tubes and throwing the paper and opening syringes and throwing the paper. And it was just this of paper, like confetti in the air. And I remember looking at the floor after my wife came up to the hospital. But yeah, so the nurse started talking to me about an incident that happened, and she said you couldn't have seen that. You weren't even here, you know. You were dead at that time. Your heart had stopped. Yeah. But if you'd been at home as opposed to Beaumont Hospital, oh, yeah. you'd have had a so you would have been died of a heart attack. Yeah, because basically I was in Beaumont and I was in, I was on a cart monitor, which is how they seen that I flatlined. Because I was lying in bed and the nurse flew in and I was flatlined at that stage. But my cardiologist lived in Castle Knock, which is right beside Manchester Hospital. So he could get there. He was there over in 10 minutes. And I remember I was lying in the bed, right? And this card, this said uh, the cardiologist came in and he had an anaesthetist with him, and I couldn't breathe, so my heartbeat was gone down to forty beats a minute. It come back, but it was at forty beats. It should be at about eighty or ninety beats a minute. So I'm kind of <gasps> because my heart wasn't beating, the oxygen wasn't getting thrown around my body, so I'm suffocating on my own kind of blood race on <laughs> like this in the bed, and you put it. I had a, an IV here, so they put it adrenaline into me, but it wasn't doing. It wasn't getting in. I wasn't doing that, and so there was a blockage or something in the IV in my arm. So this anaesthetist has come in, and I'm <gasps> like this, <gasps> and he slit my neck there and put a, a thing in, like a, a tube in, and immediately it was like, <gasps> and I start breathing properly, because what he did was, he put a defibrillator wire into me, into me jugular vein, and that went down to my heart and kicked my heart off, and my heart came back again. But it was literally, <laughs> and then I just start breathing, and an amazing feeling. Yeah. Because you think you're drowning, you know what I mean? And then you start breathing normal, and it's just an amazing feeling. Did you have any thoughts of your past in that, in that moment? No, I was, bit, I was a bit kind of disturbed about that, because I was always into that. When I read about people that had this white tunnel thing, you know, and, and I always, I said, I'd love that to happen to me. And I, it was a real downer, you know. I didn't see this beautiful place or any of that kind of I know your, your mother baited you out the door and your, to Mass and your father baited you out the door back from Mass. Yeah. But do you believe in God? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, no. 
I'm not. I'm a, I'd love to be. I'd love to have that. That like my wife's mother and my own mother were. They went to their deaths, glorious ignorance. I think you know, but they they, they just loved the fact that you were going to their heaven. You know, and I don't believe that. So I believe you're just going to be mega filled. So I'd love to have the peace they had when they went to their graves. But when I was dying and when I was sick, I got real religious. I swear to God, I got real religious. And it reminded me of, do you remember that there was a Simpsons um, episode where Lisa, you know, was talking about the desperation of a dying man, you know? Yeah. And it's true because I was praying and praying and praying when I was sick. But like, I just, I can't, I can't get through the logic. But it's not the, the thing, there is no logic. The non-logic of yeah. religion, you know. And then I, you know, when I see what, it, what it's been doing in the world for. Yeah. Like the one thing that when I was, when I was rubbing that nurse's hand and I thought I was dying, the thing that really blew me away was the fear I had. I'd never had that type of fear before. The fear of dying, you know. Because nobody wants to die. No, but it's a, it's, it's, an, it's a terror. It's abject terror you have. Because I could see it. I could literally see where I was going. Do you know what I mean? This is this is the yeah, If I go down here, I'm dead. Do you know what I mean? And when I come back to that, the relief of it was is that amazing. the strength that's kept you going six, seven probably, years? Probably. And I, and if you go back to all the other stuff you've been through, I think it could be. You know, because there's been a lot of like, I, I, like we've been in there to plane crash. I've gone through a heroin addiction, a crack cocaine addiction, a cancer, two different types of cancer. Like it's weird. Like I'd I'd be I'd be kind of trying to walk through life and hide if there is a God. But hide you, from him, you know? Shane McGowan and Keith Richards will be still surviving if there's a well, nuclear holocaust and the ants, of course. Us, us and, and the, and the cockroaches. cockroaches yeah. yeah, you should That's form a it. super band. Yeah, but it's, you know, I'd look at Shane like that. You know, he's a great survivor. You know, and amazing, amazing survivor. And I don't know what that is. I don't know why you know that I survived and other people didn't. It's not. It's not. It's not a quality I have or anything. It's just luck. Yeah. What's your living with your wife? What's that like living with Christy Dignam? I don't know. I think I'm very easy to live with. You know. Yeah. I'm a very fairly easy. Would you be serenading her at night? No. You know, over she dinner, she's not, cooking she's her. Not. Like. Is is Christmas you singing never, fairy tale in New York to, to all the no, all the grandkids? Yeah, it's more it's more fairy tale in New York than nothing else. <laughs> but like. I, sometimes me 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 grandkids will come in, you know, and they go on the Alexa or something. Say, Alexa, do a Aslan shuffle, you know, and it'll shuffle Aslan songs, you yeah. know, and songs will be played, old songs that I'd forgot. And his granddad singing? No, I'd be just sitting there listening to them. But my wife would never say, "Jeez, that's a good old." I'd I'd be listening, and I say, "I forgot we wrote. That's a good song, isn't it?" And my grandson would say, "Granddad, I didn't know you wrote that song. That's a great song, you know. I didn't know you that was yours or whatever." But my wife would never say that. But me. she always has to pick a moment because she waited six years, six months to tell you that you were going to die, and you didn't. Yeah, and she waited. She waited. Like I mean, for the for all the time I was using, I was obviously wasn't a husband to her, you know. So, you know, she 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 kind of. I used to say to her, I used to look at her and say, "Why why did you stick with me?" She said, she always believed the original person she fell in love with would come back eventually. You know. Did you believe that? No. Yeah, I didn't. When did that. it come? When did the, that person come back? It was kind of, it was everything. When I got the cancer, like I'd, I'd been, I'd stopped using for a long time, 
by, by the time I got the cancer and all. But I was still in a headway acting acting the EG, you know, just running around, not looking after myself and just being a dope. And when I got the cancer, I had to look after myself. You know, I had to start watching what I was eating and cutting out on sugar and all these things. And it kind of, it gave me a lease of life that, you know, gave me an energy that I didn't know I even had. Because for years I was just running around like a headless chicken. And it was funny, Barry, right? So, you know, we were, ta- you were, talk- we were talking earlier on about your kids and stuff. When I, when I, had, when I was told I had six months, or when, I, when that six months was kind of, I was still expecting to drop one in the next few weeks, do you know what I mean? Because my wife had said to me, this, you were supposed to die yesterday, the six months was up yesterday, you were supposed to be dead by then, you know. So I thought, well, it's not to the minute, Catherine, you know. <laughs> See, there week, wasn't a clock. <laughs> yeah. But the one thing that, that was really important to me was to spend a little bit more time with, with the family, you know, with the grandkids and stuff. So the band wasn't important. And I love Mercedes cars. So, like, I love my car. For years, I wanted to buy a Mercedes. So when I kind of had a few bob, I bought a Mercedes car. And, but none of that mattered. None of it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Nothing. But what did matter was just spending a little bit more time with my kids and with my family and with my daughter and stuff like that. Honest to God, it almost sounds real sad. And I remember thinking after that for years I was running around like a headless chicken trying to find out what the world was about. And What do you think the world's about now? The world is about coming into it and trying to leave it a little bit better than the, what, what you found. You know, or trying to, trying to give your kids an easier kind of road than what you've had. Just to talk briefly about Aslan, did you suffer prejudice at the start? And Still do, buddy. There was See something you told plants. the Irish Times which I thought was interesting. There was a, this kind of idea that you would write a song in between bash, yeah. battering an old lady and robbing a car. That was the way. Like, I remember we were, playing in the, we were playing in the Point Depot. Now, here's five young fellas from Fingless who have come from nothing and are playing in the Point Depot. Now, you think that would be celebrated. So I'm driving in the car on the day of the gig, on the way into the, to, to the Point or to the hotel, and somebody goes on FM 104, I think it was, and he said, oh, get your Ronnies and your Ben Chairmans out, Aslan are in town tonight. And th- that was the general, but even all this COVID thing, I applied for every grant that the, that the government, we didn't get any of them, and I'm looking at the list of bands that got it, bands I've never heard of, all the bands, 90% of them I didn't hear of, and then you pay other people, like Tommy Fleming and all, you know, multi-millionaires getting it, and we didn't get it. But that's always been the way. We've always, like, even when we, when, so when we done the Crazy World, the Charlie Mountain album, we were doing a tour, we had a tour of England booked for starting on the 26th of July, right? So we are releasing Crazy World in England and the album, and we are going on a six-month tour of Britain. So about a week before the tour was to kick off, I knew by the, the, the lack of, phone calls from London that the tour wasn't going to happen. I just knew. I said, these are blanking us. I know that. It was BMG Records at the time. So we were signed to BMG in Ireland and England and the rest of the world. So about a week before I rang, I said, what's the story with this tour and blah, blah. Uh, well, look, we're out there listening to the album. We had a meeting. There's no hits on the album. So we're not going to do the tour. So I thought that that was the highest insult because this is, our crazy world has been a huge hit here at the time. That was on the album. 
there was even better songs than that on the album. But anyway, so we I went had to go back to the pig story and I said or to the rehearsal room and I said to the lads, Listen, this tour's not happening, you know. So I told them what's happened with the phone call and all. So it meant we had six months with nothing to do, absolutely nothing, with no way of earning money, no way of doing nothing. So we said, Right, let's start doing it. I said, When I was with Dignam and Goff years ago, I says, We used to do all these little pubs around, you know. I says, You can still play in those places and kind of earn some sort of living. So all the other bands in Ireland, in Dublin, were giving us slackery, you know. Ah, cabaret, Aslan are turned cabaret because we were playing the Ballymun Towers or the playwright in Black Rock, whatever, whatever the gig may, may, may have been. So we always thought what we're playing is going to determine if it's cabaret, not where we're playing, you know. And we need to do this for money because we had mortgages and we had children to feed. So we went out and we did that around up Dublin and then we expanded that around Ireland and we were playing every little toilet around Ireland, every little bar all over the country. So then when we were doing bigger gigs like the Ivy Gardens or something like that, because we played in some little village in the arsehole of Cork or Kerry, these people appreciated it and they came up to Dublin when you had a bigger gig, you know. Yeah. And that's what sustained us and that's why we're still kind of together today because... We kind of did it, you know, without even realising it, we did it the old way. You know, we learned how to be sing. I learned how to be a singer and how to be a frontman and how to be a songwriter. The, the way you should learn on the road. You're, you're going since 1985. Yeah. What, what do you think Aslan's legacy is or will be? That we were a hard-working band. That's all we want to be. You know, we were a hard-working band. And you see, I believe... People say to me, you know, oh, Chris, you should have been this, you should have been that. You know, you should have been huge and you should have been this. I don't really care about that. Because to me, I, I know that our lack of international success is not determined by the quality of our music. It's been determined by the bad decisions we've made with managers and stuff like that, you know. Because when I listen to wear music and I listen to other bands, like I was listening to an 80s thing there the other day and I was listening to some of the music on it and we'd have blown any of the bands away that were on it, you know. Our, our, our first yeah. album. There was um, at one point many years ago you were touted as the, the next U2. Yeah, that, that, that was one of the biggest things that killed us because, you know, I remember going to, um, doing an interview with the NME and a man kept asking me about Bono all the time, you know. And you lived, and they, finally he says, but you live with Bono, you know. And I said, come here and I tell you about where Mono lived and where I lived. And I came out with this little tirade. Anyway, before that happened, I wrote on a bit of paper, principal management, and I handed it to your man, and I walked out of the interview. We'd been interviewed in the Gresham Hotel, right? So the enemy had come over with a journalist and a photographer and all, so he had to get that story to bring back to the enemy. So when, he, when I walked out of the interview, I freaked him out because he obviously had to get this story. So he came out and he apologised and he came back in and we did an interview. And I thought it was a really good interview he did, you know. So at the end of the interview, he said, the only reason I was asking about you two, because I know you grew up with them. And I said, come here and I tell you something. I says, where Bono lived, I says, it was Sunday every day of the week compared to where I lived. I said, the part of Fingers he lived in was nothing like the part of Fingers I lived in. It was like a little oasis of wealth within Fingers. So it was just a little tirade. I kind but, of but didn't Bono and Googie call over to your house? Yeah, no, this times. was then. I'm just talking yeah. about then. Like, uh, yeah. since but, was it a few years ago they called over? When, when they came out of hospital first, yeah. yeah. Like, we kissed and made up. We actually laughed about this incident then, you know, because it was just, at the time, you see, when you're in a band, buddy, 
you have to be better than every other band that's out there. Do you know what I mean? So you look at every other band, you're jealous of their successes, you know, because you want those successes and stuff. So that's the way it was back then. And it was the same with every other band. Like, there's us and the flowers for a while, you know, and there was always these little rivalries between bands. And, you know, if, if their album got number one in a week, you wanted yours to get number one in half a week, you know. And yeah. You told me during the summer that your, your heart was broken when your dog died. You actually told me you, know, you were more broken hearted over yeah. your dad over your dog dying than your dad dying. Yeah, is I that was. true? Yeah. So I had Jack. Anybody that knows me will know. I used to have this Yorkshire Terrier and he came everywhere with me. His name was Jack. So I had him 12 years and he was just, he was my wingman. He came absolutely everywhere with me. Like uh, uh, He's been in the hot press. He's on Hello Magazine. He's on Lucy when I did a Lucy show. So he's just a great little dog and he's amazing. So about a month, about two months ago, I'm in the gaff and I let him go out to Jack's. And when he came in, he was panting and his legs were kind of shaking. So it was eight, it was six o'clock in the morning at that stage. I waited till late and I rang the vet and the vet says, put him on Skype, show me his gums and his eyes. So I did all that. He says, get him down to the vet. So I brought him down to the vet at nine o'clock in the morning. And he said, look, I'll put him on a drip He's had to retain him fluid. He said, I'll put him on a drip and I'll ring you later on when, when all the... Well, I'll put him on a diuretic, sorry. And when all the fluid drains off, I'll ring you. So I got, got home and he rang me. I only walked in the door and he rang me. He's come straight back down again. He says, the dog's had the vomit and blood all over the surgery. So his heart valve had popped and he started retaining fluid. That's where all the fluid was. And he died. And I was inconsolable. I couldn't believe it. I was... Absolutely inconsolable. So with me dad on, it was like it was like a release for him. Do you know what I mean? Because he'd hated being in a nursing home or all that carry on going on with dementia and all. So it was kind of a release for him to die, and it was his time. But Jack, it was just so suddenly, and I was absolutely devastated. I couldn't talk. I couldn't eat for three days. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. The house was like a mortuary. Just the, 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 there was no, you know, the pitter patter of dog's feet running around. Like somebody had knocked at my door and the dog would bark. If the dog came on the telly, the dog would bark, you know. So all that was missing from the house. And it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And I, I, I'm not ashamed to say it. It was worse than my dad dying, yeah. Did you get another dog? Yeah. What's his name? Holly. It's a girl. Yeah. So she's a little bitch. And I keep saying to her, you're no Jack. You're no Jack. <laughs> and she says, you're no Bono. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it, yeah. Listen, we're going to leave it there. Hey, old buddy. Listen, Christy, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming in and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to <laughs> okay. you too. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> you're no Bono. Oh, the Barry Egan Tapes on News Talk.